Good evening, everybody. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure for me to really uh, be the host for this dialogue called the Thinker's Dialogue. Uh, quite interestingly, uh, I'm shared that uh, this is an in initiative, which is going to be a weekly interaction that we're going to have with the foremost thinkers across the world. And wherein we are really going to talk about things like violence, democracy, capitalism, philosophy, and how the world is actually changing. Uh, if you really look at the world today, the world is going through some dramatic changes. Uh, and this has started happening in the last 20 to 30 years. Uh, and how this is really going to affect our lives is the question that we are really going to be asking uh, to our uh, guests over a period of time. Uh, so as you look at the series, we have uh, one of the foremost thinkers uh, in the world in the area idea, in the area of philosophy who's joined us today. Uh, and he's none other than Brad Evans, who's there with me today. In fact, uh, uh, quite interestingly, I must share uh, uh, who Brad is. Brad is a political philosopher, a critical theorist, who's been a prolific writer, a movie maker, uh, in fact, a person who wears many, many hats. Uh, but quite interestingly, he, he works in a very interesting area called violence. And he's uh, written about 17 books, edited volumes, written tons and tons of academic papers and media articles, uh, has been somebody who's created a series with the, the New York Times. He's actually doing something with the Los Angeles Review, uh, on Los Angeles Review of Books, and so on and so forth. In fact, I would suggest that you should go to his website, History of Violence, and see his work and probably go to his university website as well, where he's a professor. So he's a professor at uh, the University of Bath uh, in UK. Uh, and that's, uh, that's where I would request you to really all go and see his work. Uh, but then one very interesting thing, in fact, uh, uh, Russell Brand actually says that he is the George Clooney of philosophy. So somebody who's like an absolutely a stunning person uh, who who is like uh, more like uh, I would say a great actor maybe at some point in time somebody who's creating impact and so on and so forth. So Brad, thanks a lot for joining us today and really helping us kickstart this uh, series called the Thinkers Dialogue uh, and being our first guest uh, for the show. Uh, thanks a lot, uh, uh, Brad. No, thanks for inviting me, and it's a it's a, an honor to kickstart this initiative of yours. I think it's a great initiative. So thanks for inviting me. Uh, thank you, Brad. So we will quickly uh, get into the conversation here uh, today. Uh, Brad, uh, I must ask you a question. In fact, what fascinates you to in this uh, world in terms of this idea of violence? And what drives you to work in this area? Why focus on this? Like Because uh, it seems to be a very dangerous area to actually work in because you can actually have points of view which could be different, which could be uh, diagrammatically opposite to a lot of people in the world. Uh, so it could be a very dangerous area to work on. So what, what motivated you to move towards that idea? Mm -hmm. Well, I think like many people, we're all too aware of the presence of violence in our lives. But we, and I think you're right, we, we tend not to think about it. We tend not to try to dwell upon violence. And we try not to kind of, you know, I agree with Richard Bernstein that we've, in our societies, we're saturated by images and representations of violence, but we don't like to dwell upon it philosophically or politically for too too much you know, length of time. It's just violence is like we think that you know something that other people do, or violence is something which exists elsewhere. But as actually we know that if, if we simply look around in our societies, the violence is everywhere, right? So there's, and and I think the thing that I've been really trying to come to terms with first of all was. You know, how do we understand the ways in which our societies are born of violence, have been made through violence, but even to try to think about the ways in which, what does the term violence actually mean? Well, you know, when, 
when is something violent, right? So does violence necessarily need to, you know, mean physical bodily harm or can we actually talk? And if that is the case, then, you know, what types of bodily harm do we refer to as violence or just simply, you know, the collateral effects of economic devastation and so forth. So, so for me, there was a great deal of, I guess, of soul searching that kind of happened, I think, roughly around 1998, um, when I first became aware of the Zapatista um, group in Mexico. But then the more I kind of started to research violence, I guess it was more kind of, you know, um, coming to terms with my own past as well. And I grew up in the uh, the mining communities of South Wales, which are in the United Kingdom, amongst the most poorest uh, communities in the United Kingdom. And I also grew up on one of the most notorious council estates in this area. And you kind of realise that when you grow up, actually, is that, you know, he, Children in particular, but young people, we have this brilliant ability to forget the bad stuff and remember just the good, happy times of our lives. And I think for me then, trying to come to terms with violence was also a, perhaps a way of trying to come to terms with the past in which I lived, where I grew up in an area which was very violent and very, um, and I don't mean just, you know, not just politically violent, but also endemic poverty, chronic, you know, um, drug abuse, you know, random violence which was taking place, you know, pretty much every time you, you know, you went out on a weekend. And and I think so to try to come to terms with that as well was also then to me demanded more, you know, detailed thinking around, okay, well, what is this thing? How does it, you know, make demands upon us? And not just to see perhaps violence as something which is associated with what like Freud might call a death drive or violence, which is something which is purely negative, but the way in which violence has, has and continues to transform our societies and the demands it places upon us. I think those were questions which from, you know, from, I say, from you know, 1998 onwards really started to impress on me. And then of course you have the wars on terror and all the kind of global consequences of those very visceral and abhorrent acts of media violence we became more and more, you know, um, aware of. And, and I think to me then there was so many pressing questions which once you start, it's almost like, you know, there's this point which like Nietzsche says, you know, be careful that you don't stare into the abyss because the abyss will stare back at you. And I think it's right in the context of violence in the sense of the more you research it, the more violence you find. And it's very difficult then to kind of leave it because it leaves you with more and more questions. So I think that was always then my kind of, you know, my journey into violence. And it's a journey now where I'm kind of, you know, I've just finished writing a book where I've, um, it, it kind of deals with, you know, it's, it's called Echo Humanitas, Beholding the Pain of Humanity. And it's coming out with Columbia University Press in July. And I've kind of ended up going back to Dante and, you know, and Dante, you know, we might know that this year is the 700th anniversary of Dante's death. And even now his mediation of witnessing violence is still so prescient to our world. You know, we still haven't confronted the questions which Dante was asking us to consider 700 years ago. So I think there's so much still to be asked about violence. This is fascinating. And you, you actually said something very interesting in your statement, and that was that societies are born of violence. So yeah. are you saying that violence is something which has just been prevalent across the board? You've also said that, of course, like inequality could be something which depicts violence itself. Uh, so 
that could you give me some insights in terms of like how societies have really grown over a period of time, how violence has actually affected our thinking and our quality of life or our living? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, certainly for instance, if you look in, in the Western context, right, the, we know no, no narrative of our history which doesn't begin with a story of violence. So if we just walk into, for instance, any natural history museum, it's the, the depiction that it presents of human life and the human condition. I'm not saying, I'm just saying this is a story, right? It's not necessarily true. But the story we like to tell ourselves is of humans who are born and thrown into a world and thrown into a condition which is survival. And the, the history that we like to tell ourselves then is one of survival against the elements, survival against nature, survival against other tribes, survival against other nations, survival against nuclear holocaust. You know, so, so all these kind of stories that we tell ourselves, you know, we present ourselves in terms of the evolution of the human condition with what I've called a natural history of violence. And this is very much embedded in our cultures. It's like as if we know no other history without this. Now, perhaps part of our task is to unwrap a different version of history because we know this is not the only version of history available to us, but certainly this is the narrative we tell ourselves. And then if we look back then at the history, for instance, of Western civilization, you know, we know, for instance, that Western literature begins with a shilly story of the Oresteia, you know, and it begins as a story of war with Agamemnon killing his daughter and then, you know, Clytemnestra taking over and invoking a regime of terror. The history of Western societies is premised on violence. The history of colonization was deeply violent, you know, and we continue. And this is a strange thing in terms of, you know, when... We think about, you know, people would like write after September the 11th, oh, you know, this is an age of exceptional politics. And, you know, what's happening now is, you know, an exceptional violence and an exceptional response. It wasn't exceptional at all. That, That kind of violence is completely normal to the human condition. Who on earth didn't expect America to go to war after 9-11? It was inevitable. It was that this is the way we resolve our problems. And and I think that, so that idea, you know, I I don't think we, we, I can't name one single society on earth and one single nation on earth, which hasn't been born of violence in one way or another. We might even point to, you know, the, beloved Scandinavian countries of Switzerland and Sweden, you know, which like to place themselves on the plinth of peace. But actually, their economies are deeply invested in the global arms trade and are very much integrated in global ideas of war. And, you know, so I think this idea of, you know, so I think that there's, to me, that is, it raises interesting questions for me around what might then a a non-violent society look like? Or do we need to give ourselves a more, you know, promising understanding of the history of the human condition, which doesn't place its star point as one that begins with violence? Because then we, you know, it's not just about reimagining the future, perhaps, but it's how we reimagine the past, too. Because also, I don't buy into this conceit that humans are simply naturally violent. And I think... Because actually, I think it takes a great deal of effort to engage in violence. Perhaps sometimes the question we need to ask ourselves is, why are we not more violent? 
right, on an individual level. We know actually that, you know, people offend us and deeply wound us, you know, in many different ways, but we don't respond violently. I think actually it takes a lot for somebody to be violent individually. So, so in that sense, then I don't buy into the idea either that humans are simply naturally violent. Violence is organized. Very little violence is random or spontaneous. So I think we need to understand then that kind of con seeming contradiction, but it's not a contradiction. Where on the one hand, we are presented with a history of the human condition, which is deeply violent. But then on the other hand, most humans will go throughout their lives without being violent. So I think that there's something, you know, we need to come to terms with in that contradiction. So uh, Brad, you know, like there, there is always this debate that actually happens. Like uh, when you talk about societies being violent and everything has emerged from violence. Uh, so I have to ask you a question, it could be a very tricky one. Uh, but then do you think like, how do you really look at religion in this context, uh, in the context of history, in the context of violence? Because somehow it seems uh, quite a lot of religions must have actually arisen out of violent behavior or uh, mm -hmm. violence over a period of time. Mm -hmm. So, well, well, you know, like, like I mentioned in this, this, this previous um, yeah, answer, but this, this new book that I'm working on, the, basically the book is a critique of what, I, what is called sacred violence. Right? And sacred violence was a concept which was initially developed by the phenomenal thinker René Girard. Now, I agree with René Girard in, in the sense that I don't think history is defined by class war, or I don't think history is defined by race war. I think history is defined by religious war. And history actually is the continuation of religious war. So, and what I mean by that, you know, René Girard has this theory where he basically says that, you know, society begins with sacrifice, that we have sacrifices. Just think, for instance, of the sacrifice of Christ as the obvious example, which G Girard uses, right? And Girard says you have this kind of abhorrent violence, but this violence is necessary because it allows us to set in place the morality of society. So in, in, that word, in, in other words, for Girard, we always need the sacrifice to let us know what is permissible in a society. So in other words, we will never truly banish violence. We just need to regulate it. Now, religion becomes the, the, the vehicle for this, historically. Religion, is, and in that sense, of course, you know, without getting too philosophical, this is the way in which we then understand metaphysics. You wouldn't have a Christian metaphysics, would it not, for the sacrifice of Jesus, right? But you can latch this onto the modern nation state. A modern nation state would not have very little appeal to us, were it not willing to appeal to the sacrifices of the past. So, you know, Francisco de Goya understood this. You know, Francisco de Goya was the very first artist to paint what Nietzsche calls the death of God. And what Goya understands, for instance, in his, in his representations of violence is how the body of Christ is replaced by the body of the hero. So the hero now becomes the new sacrificial motif for society. And this is where I agree with Carl Schmitt. The modern societies are basically adaptations of theology that we always need the theological from time to time in order to make our appeal to some idea of the greater good, the morality and so forth. And I think in that sense, then, the history of our societies is a history of religious wars. And I don't just mean in terms of orthodox religion. I mean in terms of the multiple ways that 
theology can permeate our societies and make us be behave in theological ways, which we don't even recognize as being theological. Now, one of the questions then, which I like to ask myself is, okay, how do we understand, and this is what I do in this book, you know, what then, if, if we want to call maybe the change in sacred object for power, right? how do we understand the way in which this has transformed over time? If Jesus, the body of Jesus was the sacred object for Christianity, and the body of the hero becomes the sacred object for states, what we've witnessed over the last 30 years is how the victim themselves becomes a sacred object. Right. So, and what I mean by this, we can think of this, I think there's a very pivotal moment in the late 1960s, and that is the representation of the burning Vietnamese girl called Kim Puk. And, you know, her image of her running down the street in itself with her arms out wide is very iconic and very theological, right? She's like a surrogate Christ on the cross whose back is burning as she's running down the street. And there's a, there's a Christian theology at work there. But the victim becomes a sacred object in particularly liberal politics, where it's okay to go to war in order to uphold the idea that their sacrifice was worth, worth it. So how many times, for instance, have we justified bombing around the world to liberate women or to liberate children or, you know, so we're carrying out violence in the name of the sacred victim. And I think that to me is why then, you know, liberal wars that we've seen over the past 20, 30 years are an extension of religious war. You know, they use the motif of what we call just violence. Just war is a profoundly theological doctrine. So I think we cannot understand the history of the human condition and its violence without understanding religion, but also the way in which religion itself is not simply just Islam, Christianity, Judaism. Religion can permeate our societies, and that's why it's so, you know, formidable, really. It, it, the way in which it adapts and can work with secularization and can work with, you know, and that's where I agree with Nietzsche. You know, when, when Nietzsche was saying, you know, we need to think beyond good and evil, right? We, we, we need, well, I, I think what he's really saying is we need to think beyond the sacred. This idea that it's okay to kill for the greater good. And I think that is what the sacred ultimately means, that it's it's okay for us to kill as long as we can connect it to some metaphysics, to some idea that this killing is worth it. And I think that's where, you know, the religious always smuggles itself in to even the most secular ideas. So how do we resolve this problem? Because, because historically, if that, that's where it is. Like if history is full of religious wars, or that is how the world has actually come to be. Uh, how do we really create societies today? Like, what do you think would be the ideal situation? Uh, we can't really say that religion is going to be thrown out of the window uh, or uh, it has to be discarded in the dustbin of history. Uh, then how do we really set societies which are going to be just humane and not violent? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I think it's a really important and... I'm not saying it's an impossible to answer question, but I, you know, I, I agree with you in the sense that um, we also have to come to terms with the fact that religion or spirituality or something along that lines means so much to so many people, right? Because, and perhaps part of the issue is, you know, um, especially in our societies today where we are taught to believe that, you know, 
this delusion that we will find happiness through material enrichment, for instance. We know this is a fallacy. We know this is an illusion, right? That this, this idea that we will find a meaningful or a valuable life simply through commodification. Any, anybody who's existed with any kind of degree of you know, relative privilege in terms of, you know, even if you grew out of poverty like, like I did, and then suddenly you find yourself having the slightest bit of disposable income that you can buy, you know, just something nice for yourself, you know that that's just an illusion that very quickly dissipates, right? So we don't find happiness as, as humans through commodification. Now, the then question then becomes, well, okay, where do then people find then meaning and value in life? Well, obviously, there's a return back to religion. There's a return back to spirituality because it gives a sense of meaning to people's lives, which otherwise just appears to be vacuous and abstract in, in a way which is just linked to if I have the best car or the nicest house or whatever else, even though you might have all those material possessions and you are miserable as sin, right? So, so I think there is something then in that moment that we need to recognize, okay, to me, it's not an answer, but it's a question around, okay, what does a meaningful life look like? Or, what, or more importantly, perhaps, what does a meaningful life feel like? Because, you know, we, we need to feel valued. We need to feel that we're living a meaningful existence. Now, to me, then, we are kind of then caught in this kind of unhealthy dialectic between either materiality or a spirituality which has to uphold life as some kind of sacred value in need of saving. And we will justify whatever we need to do because it's for the greater good of humanity and therefore we will commit wars and violence in its name and so on. And I think perhaps, you know, we need a different conversation. And, and a different conversation which is based on the idea of non-exclusionary conversations. And, too often, and this is one of the dangers which I see, particularly in certain, you know, I've grown up in the tradition of leftist politics, but I see today the way in which the left is collapsing into a completely morally certain religiosity, actually very dangerous for the world, because this idea that we know what's best for the world, we know what's morally right, we know what's morally certain. And I think what we need to have is perhaps a more humble and open conversation with people for me to say to somebody who's you know devoutly religious well okay i understand that your beliefs matter to you but can you not see also the way in which the sacred has been so complicit in histories of violence right so how can we have then an open and meaningful conversation which is not premised on ideas of universality, that we all, you know, that I'm suddenly Brad Evans and I have the solution to the world because my idea is the best idea and I'm not willing to entertain any other ideas, but actually what we might call an ethics of difference, which, and this is not about, you know, saying, well, let's, you know, let's say that the Taliban are right. You know, it's, it's not about that. It's about, of course, we can condemn authoritarian groups and of course we can condemn groups which are very pernicious in their violence, but it's still to have a recognition that humans have different ideas about what a meaningful life means. And, and, but, but it is something that we do kind of share as a, you know, as part of the human condition is that we all, I think, want to live a meaningful life in one way or another, however that kind of looks for us. 
And I think to have an open conversation and a more open conversation on that, which doesn't come to a really conversation, you know, doesn't look like something on Twitter, right? You know, it, it demands, you know, a more sustained reflection. And you know, to give you just one obvious example, you know, September the 11th, 2001 was such an important event in history. We know that now. We can see, you know, and and it raised so many important questions for us. Now, to me, first of all, you know, what made 9-11 so unique wasn't the spectacle of violence. We've seen those spectacles of violence before. And actually, we, we actually relived 9-11 so many times in Hollywood before the event actually happened, right? Um, but the first thing, of course, what made 9-11 very important was our handful of nameable individuals created the image of a global security crisis. Not armies of millions like Hitler. This was 19 nameable individuals who create the image of a global security crisis, which could only come about through new media technologies. The fact that the world was now broadcast live to us in any given moment. But the second point, which was to me more crucial about 9-11, was the speed of response that we, you know, Tony Blair, the British leader says, this is the day the world changes forever. Now, this is, you know, Tony Blair, this is the day the world changes forever. We go to war two weeks later. If it truly was the day the world changed forever, surely we should have spent more time you know, considering the political and philosophical consequences rather than simply say, okay, right, back to war, right? So, and I think this is another thing that perhaps we need, you know, when, when you talk about, okay, what does the ideal society look like? I don't think it's an ideal, but I do think that perhaps one of the things that you, which defines, you know, as the, the brilliant late philosopher Paul Virilio argued is that our societies are now defined by speed. We want to speed up everything. Right, the speeding up of communication, the speeding up of the flows of life, the, spe the speeding up of technological innovation without thinking of the consequences of them. And I think if we are going to have a new politics, you know, we need time to reflect, time to reflect on global events, time to reflect on global problems. And I think perhaps what our politics needs is the slowing of things down to take our time more to reflect upon the histories of suffering, to reflect more deeply about what it means to have, you know, a meaningful dialogue amongst Jewish communities and Islamic communities. How do, you know, this is not something that happens overnight. And I think that we need to maybe recognize and have a more open dialogue and say, well, look, you know, maybe some of these, these as you, you, your question intimates, you know, since time immemorial, we've had this kind of religious violence. Okay, right? Maybe we need to put history on a different path and kind of say, well, okay, how do we mediate and overcome this? But that will take time. And I think, but those conversations that part of the problem that we have is that time has now been almost written out of the script. We demand immediate responses now. We demand immediate solutions. Whereas actually, you know, how wonderful would it be for a politician to suddenly say, look, you know, I've got no immediate solutions for you. I've got no immediate, you know, answers, but let's at least have a proper conversation. Let's, you know, I'm not going to give you immediate results to what you want to resolve global conflict, 
but let's take our time and really work through this properly. And I think that would be so refreshing for any leader globally to say that. So this is very interesting, uh, Brad. But then when you say that uh, politicians will possibly need time or they should be given time at some point, uh, if you really look at this uh, conversation. Uh, but mm -hmm. then, you know, like in the world which is driven by social media, where everything is so instantaneous, as you said in your previous answer itself, uh, you, you are living in a state, a state where information is being hounded onto you or it is being pushed onto you. Uh, in the world which is full of Twitter users, the information can just go from one end of the world to the other end in less than a minute. Everybody is probably tweeting about it. So in a world which is driven by instantaneous information and they need instantaneous solutions, how, how do you think politicians will be able to survive that? They, they are be possibly being pushed into that arena of immediacy because of the way we are actually living our lives today. And that has affected, and this has possibly happened in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, you know, like many people, I was initially seduced by social media. And I don't, now don't get me wrong, I think, you know, some of the technological advances that we have witnessed over the last 20 years have been phenomenal. The fact that we can even have this conversation, right? So I think that in itself, you know, technology can be remarkably enabling if it is actually done in a considered way. And I'd like to think, for instance, this conversation is, is an opening, and like what you're trying to do is an opening in terms of let's have a sustained rigorous conversation right it's not about imposing ideas as well saying okay let's let's open up and have a rigorous conversation but there's another aspect to social media which as you say is based on a certain demand for imminence and that imminence i find to be not only problematic it is highly dangerous it is based often on a politics of shaming you know, one of the things which defined fascism historically was publicly shaming people. This has now become democratized, right? We see this every single day on Twitter. You know, the shaming of J.K. Rowling because of her biological beliefs or whatever. You know, I don't, I disagree with what J.K. Rowling thinks about biology, but she has every single right to hold those opinions. You know, and it's not about some angry mob shaming her on social media because we disagree with them what she happens to believe and I think that there's a side to I think we confuse on social media today information with knowledge so you know anybody can have an opinion right? anybody can you know tweet an opinion most you know and I've, I've recognized this myself you know that I, I've done initiatives where you know people have participated and they are you know very active on social media they will tweet something out Immediately, it has hundreds and hundreds of retweets and whatever else. But when I actually look at whether people have actually gone to the actual recordings they've done for me, there's zero. There's no engagement with what they're actually tweeting about. So it's on, it's a very, you know, false, shallow, fabricated. It's easy to retweet something. It's easy to be angry at something without actually looking behind that and say, OK, let's deal with the substantive details. You know, somebody record a podcast or a, a video for me and then, you know, they'll get hundreds of tweets, hundreds of likes, but very few people actually engage with the substance of what is actually the tweet about. And I think that in itself reveals to me something about that kind of engagement. And, you know, the, and, and I think there's also something 
you know, I don't want to kind of beat up on millennials here, right? But there is there is something about a millennial politics that, you know, for instance, you know, for all the problems, for instance, of, you know, that I've found like historically about Islamic societies in terms of some of the ways in which its politics operates. The one thing that I find, you know, very refreshing about Islamic politics sometimes, and the same I find in Latin America too, is the recognition that elders of societies are the ones you should listen to, right? That you should respect people who are who have lived, who have, you know, who have experienced life in a way that recognizes that it's only through time that you can really truly philosophize about the meaning of life, about violence, about you know, the human condition. And, and this to me is, you know, is, is so important philosophically that you know, one of the great theorists of imminence, arguably the theorist who was the most important on imminence was the French uh, post-structural philosopher Gilles Deleuze. Gilles Deleuze's entire philosophical orientation was all about how do we think imminently? How do we develop an ethics of imminence? And, you know, Deleuze is so important for thinking about the advent of complexity science, the advent of post-structural theory, the breaking out of, you know, the move towards complexity in thinking, the move towards, you know, complexities of, of ecology. Without Deleuze, we wouldn't have had some of the most important advances in terms of philosophy in that field of study. Deleuze also says, that you can only philosophize with age. So here we have this theorist who writes about control societies, who, who recognizes the importance of imminent thinking, but also says, this only comes with experience. You can't just simply be you know, 19 years old, suddenly take to Twitter, and you have a million followers, and therefore the world should suddenly followers in itself is a theological term, right? You know, they, they, you know, and suddenly you know about the world and you can transform the world. And I'm not trying to diminish the ideas of youth because, of course, they're very important, and they're, you know, but we also, you know, we need to recognize that there are so many brilliant people who are not on social media who, you know, who have so many important things to say because they are 65, 70, 80 years old, you know, and I, I, I sometimes think of, you know, that um, I had the privilege of knowing, to me, one of the most brilliant intellects who I ever met in my life was the late Zygmunt Bauman, who was such a phenomenal thinker, you know, and such an astute thinker, who was, you know, the last person on earth who would ever be on social media. And how dearly we miss his voice right now, because there was no better critic of the state of the world than Bauman. And but not somebody who would simply tweet what he felt, because that was, you know, but who would take time to reflect, you know, a survivor of the Holocaust, a survivor of somebody who, you know, fled Nazi Germany, fled persecution then in Soviet Russia, you know, and, and somebody who really understood the human condition. And I think that too often we give ourselves over to social media as being the definitive arena of truth in the world, whereas actually it's very dangerous, I think, on, on many occasions. So. This is interesting. And, you know, like just taking the conversation ahead, you know, social media does uh, something very interesting. And of course, like it, it creates a very shallow debate that can actually happen. 
but it also saturates us with images of violence over a period of time. Like everything just seems to be so violent uh, around us. And when we start uh, looking at social media, uh, so how how do we set this uh, right? How do we tell millennials, or how do we tell the youth that you have to go in in depth to whatever you are actually looking at? It is more than two hundred and forty characters that you have to look at because you are also alluding to something very interesting that you have to look at rationality. You have to look at uh, deeply written words, which are probably a uh, little longer than 240 characters. Uh, so you are also hinting at some very strong opinion on how education has to be looked at, how things might have to change across the board, and how opinions will have to be formed. How do you really react to this proposition or an idea? Yeah, I agree. And, you know, one of the, um, you know, one of the saddest things I experience sometimes in education is you know, when students or people who ask me for my opinions are very dismissive of thinkers very quickly because of a tweet they've read or because of, you know, because of, you know, a couple of words that somebody might have said on a, on a tweet and then suddenly it becomes something which is, you know, we can dismiss the entire legacy or life of a person and their work and their history because, you know, and, and there's almost like this, you know, I'm not just saying this, this doesn't, that doesn't happen sometimes with students. It also happens with some academics, too, that there's this kind of assumption, oh, well, only if only this person knew my arguments or if only they did the work. And there's, there's a kind of arrogance which permeates social media, which kind of assumes that other people don't know the arguments or haven't done the work or haven't done the reading. Right. So but I do think with social media, you're right that it's easy now to do these kind of, you know, I say these very kind of quick fire kind of things with the hope that something will go viral. Whereas, you know, some of the greatest books in history never went viral, right? It took centuries before people actually read them, right? So, you know, it's not like an immediate kind of response, you know, that, you know, very few people read Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil when he was writing it, you know? So it's not a thing of immediacy that we're looking for you. But I think also your point about, um, again, you know, one of the defining factors of social media also is the way in which it operates at the level of emotion. And, you know, one of the great casualties after World War II was that nobody really wanted to talk about emotion in politics. Emotion was seen as dangerous, right? So for all the obvious reasons that were associated, for instance, with the likes of Adolf Hitler, who mobile, you know, Wilhelm Reich understood this brilliantly in his book on the mass psychology of fascism where you know um, emotion gets mobilized to devastate an effect now but that was you know so we have emotion written out of politics for you know nearly 30 40 years now thankfully there's been a return to recognize that emotion is important for understanding politics but also this can also permeate in terms of you know what we might call a tyranny of emotions as well and if you think in terms of <clears throat> the way in which social media operates it's now based on the truth of emotions. My emotions are authentic, your emotions are inauthentic, therefore I must be right, and we need to shut your ideas down, right? So, and this is based on a politics of emotion, which is, you know, if we're ad adapting the ideas of Georges Bataille, we might call it the affected share, right? That we, everybody's now affected in one way or another, or at least they tell you they are on social media. And I think it's quite an interesting experiment. If you walk down a street and you're on Twitter, you know, you can read social media and it's almost like the 
everybody's almost on the point of civil war. <laughs> but actually, you're walking down the street and people are happily just queuing for their latte with their face mask on, being highly obedient, probably assassinating the per person in front of them while they're waiting for a coffee. You've never, ever met this person before, but they're killing them on social media, right? So there's a real strange dichotomy at work there. But And I think the other point, then you're right, connecting this to your question about images or representations of violence, and I'm thinking about that kind of, you know, the, the, the recent program that we went on to with the, the, on the newsmakers, you know, this, this idea that this, the world somehow feels now that this was the worst, worst year ever and all this kind of, you know, preposterous narratives, you know, what, what would social media have looked like during World War Two, you know? During the height of World War II, what would social media have looked like? Or even during the Spanish flu, where 50 million people are killed, right? You know, and not just 50 million elderly people, you know, 50 million able-bodied people. You know, so to me, I think part of the, 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 the trauma of social media is also to make us believe now that we are the most afflicted people historically, that we suffer more than anybody else that we suffer greater than anybody else, that, you know, and we are the sacred victims of history, right? That, you know, nobody really suffers like this, even though we might have grown up in, with a family which is very wealthy, with a family who is providing me with a private education, a family who is sending me to one of the elite universities in the world. But you know what? I've suffered more than anybody historically. And I think there is something in that then that social media as in enables that. And I'm not saying that people don't suffer on their own terms, but we need to also have a healthy perspective on that precise history that you talk about. So, so you know, I think this is so interesting and you have written about this in the past, but are you really saying that there is something called as the challenge of uh, ignorance or weaponization of uh, or refusal to acknowledge? Is that really happening across in the world today? And uh, the people are not acknowledging as to what's happening around them or are we weaponizing ignorance and really pushing things forward? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Henry Giroux has this brilliant term, what he calls the violence of organized forgetting. And, and what we have on the one hand, I think, you know, there's, we've never known more in many ways about history, right? So, you know, we have all these, systems now where you know when I think when I went to university you know the if I wanted to get for instance a you know even a simple article I had to wait two months for an interlibrary loan to get this article sent to me this is at the infancy of the the internet today you know we have too much information you know and the problems I encounter for instance with students it's not me saying to them, well, just try to go to the library and hopefully you can get this one book because this one book is the real one you should read. Today, it's a problem of saying, well, actually, we have too much stuff. And how can I weave out the things which I think are really important for you to read? Right. So, so I think that's part of the problem. But So it's not like we lack information. We have too much of it, perhaps, sometimes. What I think we do lack is... The ability to perhaps, and again, this comes down to, to speed and time and, you know, to have a sustained reflection on history, to put things, you know, this idea of putting things in perspective. And I always think that this phrase of putting things in perspective is so important because 
when we talk about putting things in perspective, not only does that, that require a new angle of vision on something, but putting things in perspective is also about time. It, it, it's about distance. It's about how do we have a perspective with the past? How do we put our lives in perspective with the past? How do we put our lives in perspective when we, you know, we recognize this past in a way that allows us to really kind of, you know, recognize that, yes, we might be facing challenges. Yes, the pandemic is deeply, you know, has posed so many questions for us. Yes, the pandemic will create so many unknown mental health issues. Let's deal with this. Let's recognize these problems. But also let's recognize the kind of privileges that many people in the Western world have where it's okay to lock down, right? It's, it's okay to, to say, well, actually I can lock down, I can do my teaching, I can do whatever else I need to do um, without feeling like we are the most afflicted population historically. And I think that those kinds of things also is where the perspective needs to come because, you know, or even the most afflicted people live in today, you know, this, this idea that, you know, um, I might be middle-class, wealthy, go to an elite institution, but you know what? I suffer far more than somebody who lives in acute poverty in the United Kingdom because, you know, because they, of their identity fabric or whatever else. You know, I think we need to really have a, you know, a sense of, you know, maybe stop collapsing microaggressions with actual physical violence too. And I think there's something that we also need to open up as a serious conversation there. So. Mm -hmm. so, so, you know, like just moving ahead on this, there's a very interesting question from uh, one of our uh, uh, members here on the uh, Zoom. Uh, he says, mm -hmm. like, what effect does cancellation of content such as movies or cartoons that today are categorized as homophobic or racist have on society? In fact, we've also seen at one point that there are those uh, statues which are actually being thrown out into the uh, rivers or whatever, saying, oh, we, we do not actually have to respect those people. How do you really look at this? Because in, this in itself seems to be very violent behavior in terms of not accepting the past or not really being, uh, uh, we are trying to be oblivious of reality uh, that actually exists. And we're just trying to disdain everything and we're just trying to discard everything that has happened and trying to say that we are actually going to create something which is far better or whatever, but eventually we are moving towards far more violent behavior. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, you know, so first of all, I think we have to recognize um, if we're dealing with this idea of what's called cancel culture, right? The, first of all, this is not new, right? So, um, and actually historically, you know, what we might call the political right or the conservative, conservatives of history, the ones who are now calling for the conservation of things have always canceled things, right? So they've always denied people a voice. They've always denied people a forum. You know, we invade Iraq. The first thing we do is we destroy the statues of Saddam Hussein, right? So it's not like this is something that is radically new, right? So, you know, we, you know, at the aftermath of World War II, you know, statues of Hitler or, you know, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, statues of Stalin, all these things have always fallen, right? So I don't think this process is in any way new. And it's what we've done to tyrants historically. So I, you know, um, I do think, you know, like for instance, you know, I, I live in the city of Bristol and we have this kind of, you know, the recent stat the throwing down of the statue of Edward Colston. And, you know, the first question is, you know, should a statue have ever been erected to somebody who's a slave owner? Well, you know, that raises interesting questions in itself about who we put on plinths. 
But I do think also that simply believing that you should erase or eradicate history is the wrong way of dealing with these things. Now, part of the problem, for instance, with the statue of Edward Colston was that people had been campaigning for 15 years, if not more, to have at least a plaque by the side of him, at least acknowledging his part in the slave trade history. Mm -hmm. But because of local politics, that never happened. So that we might say was a failure of the political process that took place. Now, I believe it's far better to have a statue of this guy in the city and a more, you know, and a subsequent statue by the side, which recognizes the history of slavery, because then you have a more open public dialogue. And I think, you know, one of the things that always fascinates me about, you know, Italy, when you, when you go, especially to cities like Rome, that we might think on the one hand, it's very problematic that, for instance, all the, you know, the statues and the sculptures and the public parks, which were erected by Mussolini, are still intact. So you walk around the city of Rome, you know, everything of Julius Caesar and the, you know, these brutal tyrants of history are still there. They don't, you know, they don't erase anything from history. And I think actually that's, when you think about it, it's more healthy for a conversation. You know, even though they might become icons to fascist organizations, of course, right? But I still think fascists would find icons anyway. And, and I think it's, you know, it's too easy just to simply say, well, let's destroy this stuff and build a car park or, you know, whatever else we want to do on this site, you know? And, and to me, that it, it's important that we remember, but not only remember, but make sure those symbols of memory become part of a public conversation. Now, of course, I recognize that certain statues can be deeply offensive for people, but I'm not convinced that pulling of them down is necessarily the right way to go. Now, in terms of your other point then about the canceling of television programs or canceling of, you know, I think it's, it's a slippery slope in the sense of, first of all, you know, we have like examples in the United Kingdom of, you know, the history of our culture is deeply racist, right? We know this in terms of, and, you know, we have like television programs like, you know, which used to, like in sickness and in health, which were running in the 1980s, which were deeply racist programs. And even, you know, there's elements of like Faulty Towers, which is a very famous comedy program in the UK, which is also has very racist elements to it. Um, but it's a snapshot of life, what it was like in the UK at that time. And I think, you know, I think it's important to recognize this and not ban them, but engage with them in, a, you know, because you can watch these so-called comedies today and you don't laugh, right? You don't laugh at the jokes. You don't laugh at, you know, the inherent bigotry to some of them, but that still doesn't mean you should ban them. Because to me, they require engagement, they require reflection. It's not about, you know, and the, the, the one thing which I, uh, you know, I'm never comfortable with the fact of banning anything because nobody answers the ultimate question of who gets to decide, right? And, and I look in terms of the United Kingdom today and I look at the people who are calling for no platforming in universities, 
who are calling for certain art to be banned, certain films to be banned, certain books not to be published. They are the last people I would trust with deciding what's right for societies. I don't want those people telling me what's right. I class myself as you know, ethically sensitive. I understand the arguments around ethics. I understand you know, the debates around you know, homophobia, around racism, around the history of racism. I can recognize all that and I can say, yes, this history is wrong. And we need to adjust this history. We need to change this history. We need to put history on a different direction. But some of the people who are calling for the banning of things, to me, are the last people I would trust in charge of culture. Because their vision to me looks remarkably authoritarian in what they believe good culture to be. And to me, they also, you know, it comes from a very pos clear position of actually middle-class cultural privilege, which I find very problematic. So, you know, like, I, I would like to take a step back into the conversation and uh, you made a very, and just putting all this together, uh, you know, like when you're, when you, you said something very interesting and that was about how left is actually talking about morality and something what you've alluded in our previous uh, answer as well. Uh, so that when left is saying that every, they are the right moral, they have the right moral compass. Uh, but in that case, they are really pushing forward with the rise of populist fears. Because I see where left went wrong, that is why the rise of, say, Donald Trump actually happened, or why the uh, right has actually arisen, or say, uh, Le Pen actually happened in uh, France, and so on and so forth. So it's the mistakes of the left which has actually created the rise of the right. Uh, so are they recognizing that? Because that's actually an extreme form of uh, morality that they're trying to impose, they're trying to uh, push a certain level of thinking, and that's exactly what is happening right now with the removal of statues or the discourse that is happening, in, and you're certainly saying that this is not right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, so, you know, the... I think, first of all, you're right, the, the, the left has to come to terms with the ways in which, first of all, the left abandoned from the 1960s onward its most prominent constituency, namely broken communities. You know, you know, I, I grew up in the Welsh mining valleys and, you know, the left always took those people for granted and never actually helped them. You know, now this is, you know, the Welsh mining valley community, if you know historically, this is the where this is the very place where the very first red flag of socialism flew historically. It's the birth of communism in this place, right? So, you know, this is the birth of socialism the left completely neglects them. So invariably these communities eventually vote for Brexit. They levitate towards the right because the left failed them. The same is the ways in which the, for the Democrats in the United States of America, they completely neglected the so-called trailer trash communities who immediately levitate to Trump because they believe that he is speaking for them. And I think the left has so much culpability in that neglect of poor communities. This, this is clear historically, right? And, and in that sense then, but the left doesn't want to recognize that. Or, but the left gets caught up then in its own internal violence of, you know, there's this idea that, you know, the right continually looks for converts, the left always looks for traitors. And you, and you see this constantly, you know. But I think, you know, the, the loss of the election of Hillary Clinton was such a traumatic moment for the left. But of course, it was based on such entitlement. 
because she was a woman, it was now her time to be leader, right? And this was completely preposterous, right? Mm. The, and she lost the election because she was entitled. The public, the electorate could see through this completely. You know, the, it was now the time for this woman to lead the, the free world. And, you know, and rather than dealing with the substance of her ideas, which once again would have neglected the poor people of America. So I think, you know, there's, there is something in that that we can kind of, you know, collapse into this identity politics that we know can become so divisive for people. And, and I think then, you know, you're right in terms of then how do we understand the way in which the left has gone? Well, particularly post Hillary Clinton, it's just descended into this moralism. It's become more and more moralizing, more and more unwilling to, you know, and I think there's, there's elements of the left today which confuse being radical with being religious. And they are now pronouncing their moral certitude upon the world, that they know what's right for everybody, that they have read all the books, they know all the arguments, and they behave like priests on social media. You know, it's that we have the moral right to transform the world and if you don't believe us, you have bad feelings or you have bad faith or you have bad emotions or you have, you know, and, and I think you have bad ideas and all this kind of stuff. And, and to me, somebody who's found themselves historically affiliated with, you know, the left who grew up in conditions of acute poverty, to see these debates being peddled by very well-educated, very well-privileged middle-class leftists who claim to know what it means to speak about poverty and injustice, I find very problematic. So I, I fundamentally agree with what you're saying, but now the question that does arise is, how do we really set this right? Because if left is going to vacate the position in terms of not being intellectually robust or not really understanding the debates and just trying to impose, and then of course there is this rise of the right, if you might actually want to say, or the rise of the populist leaders, where, where the, will the world actually find some semblance or some balance? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think there's, to me, there's a far more acute problem that we need to deal with right now. And, and this, again, to me, is one of the inherent contradictions of this emerging, what we might call the religious left right now, um, and which actually looks remarkably similar to the religious right in the United States of America in the 1980s, right? The, the ways in which they are taking the war to the cultural wars. And actually, the, you look at the very, the very things which the, this kind of left is asking to close down. It's very similar, actually, to the arguments put forward by the religious right in the 1980s, you know? So um, I, I think that, that, but there is, a, to me, a far greater problem that we need to confront right now, which this left, has no concern with whatsoever, really. And that is the power of technology. So, you know, we have all this divisive politics, which only enriches the undemocratic platforms of technology, Twitter being the obvious example, right? So if you've looked, if you've followed, for instance, some of these kind of, you know, spokespeople for this new moral left, which is taking place on social media, during the lockdown, they were, they were the first to rejoice when Twitter finally revealed that Donald Trump was expendable to them. They were calling for Twitter to shut down Donald Trump's account. 
they were calling for you know these platforms to have more regulatory power to decide who can say what when and how and this to me is you know i find it unfathomable when on the one hand you have these very same people saying oh well you know Britain's an undemocratic state or Europe's an undemocratic state, but let's give more power to social media, right? Which is the most undemocratic, faceless. If you know, if you ever have a problem with social media and you want to get it resolved, you realize completely how faceless this organization is. You can basically fill out a few algorithmic details and hope that your feedback will help them. Right? You know, they, they never respond to you and say, actually, we're going to deal with your own specific query, right? So to me, these organizations, however dangerous Donald Trump was, I can't but help think that he was a distraction. Real power in the world today, if we understand power to transform societies, is now the technology companies in a way in which we can barely comprehend. And the thing that I find remarkable about this new kind of you know, moral left is how they want to give more and more power to technology because they realize their own gospels and platforms are enabled by these platforms. They want to, them to have a greater reach and a greater power. And that to me is where we need to really have a serious conversation because you know this moral left also feeds off the divisions. The more divisions, the more outrage there is the more they get to reaffirm how right they are in their moral positions. And I think this is only enabled by systems of technology. And I think if we are truly going to tackle power and the unequalness of power in the 21st century, we need to have a much more sustained conversation on the democratization of social media, the democratization of technology, and also to open up a serious critique of this moral dissent by certain people on the left, which also mimics the morality of the right as well, which to me, there's a, the vast majority of people in between are simply saying, I'm sorry, but I don't identify with either of you. I don't, you know, I, I don't see myself with you in this way. And actually, if we listen to social media, we can see this kind of religious right and this moral left kind of dominating the airways as if they are the only camps in town, right? And, and to me, there's, you know, we need to open up a conversation in between where we kind of ignore them in some ways and kind of say, well, actually, you don't speak for the majority of us. You know, it, it, to me, like there's, you know, I wrote a piece in the Times Higher Education uh, supplement the other day, and I see this kind of creeping into academia now where, Everything is now divided between these two kind of competing camps. Whereas to me, it's okay to kind of say, look, you know, of course I want greater diversity on university campuses, but I also need to question authenticity, right? I don't think that because somebody simply embodies a certain identity that they are necessarily the right person for the job. Or for instance, you know, I recognize the importance of thinking about this theory called intersectionality. But I'm also deeply troubled by this idea of white privilege when it's imposed upon poor white people who clearly have no privileges in this world. 
you know so i think it's okay to kind of show some nuance within these debates and say well actually you know if the world is not divided into these two camps which seem to be shouting the loudest but actually for the vast majority of the world people we're like well actually i'm not so comfortable with identifying with you and 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 that's okay right so and i think to understand that complexity is also important i think this is quite interesting and powerful but then one question that does get back to be answered and that is about surveillance that can actually happen because of technology and i think everybody in the world seems to be oblivious of that fact and uh, that we are not realizing that how high level of surveillance can actually happen on us uh, because of the technologies that we are actually imbibing and using mm-hmm. yeah i well you know so it's very common for people today to say that we are living in orwellian times right that orwell was right and you know this idea of big brother that all george orwell put forward as you know everybody's being watched and managed you know george orwell was wrong on so many levels and you know i'm a great admirer of the writings of orwell i think he's a formidable writer but the thing that orwell got wrong was the people are not suspicious of the invasiveness of people into their privacy the opposite has proved itself to be true that as humans that we've been taught to desire the idea that if you are not being watched you are a failure if i don't have a thousand or 10000 twitter followers who are following every move i do then there is something wrong you know i want to broadcast my life on social media you know and i i find it completely horrifying when i think you know um like you know one of the advantages i think our generation used to have was the ability to reinvent yourself you know i went to university there was no social media nobody knew my past i could kind of reinvent myself in a way where the past wasn't a burden for me you know of course you know i didn't want people to know my past because it was a past of acute poverty and and that sense was it was part of a coping mechanism for young people who were born into the world today they have no luxury of that now you know so it's not just surveillance of na- of now it's surveillance of our entire biographies historically and everything is known about us and we actively invest in this and we think about this then in the context of the pandemic where you know this shift towards surveillance apps which collapse every bit of data about our lives based on the premise of health and responsibility and to me this is deeply problematic the ways in which the pandemic in particular can become very much like a foil for you know the widespread biographical mapping of human life where absolutely every intimate thought feeling you know illness can be public knowledge and i think that to me is very problematic so this is again like probably it does scare me a lot in terms of like what you're saying um, but uh, one last question before we bring this conversation to a close uh, and we've already extended time Uh, but then how do you like to see the world what do you think would be the ideal state if i do ask you that question or how do you think 
or how would you want the world to improve or change or move forward in the next say a decade or two mm-hmm. well well the first thing is you know we it seems almost strange to say this now but the first more immediate return is simply human contact right so you know i i, I think the um we've realized through the pandemic how social we are as human beings and so the, the first immediate response will be well okay you know return into some sense in which humans can actually just engage in public again is a good start point um but beyond that i think you know how we engage more properly into the future would be certainly you know um a better conversation around the history of violence a better conversation around the willingness to be open and respectful that people don't necessarily see the world as we do and to recognize that we don't necessarily have the right answers to that and also perhaps a more you know appreciative understanding of the importance of art and culture to our societies i think that truly that you know the best way to transform societies is through artistic and cultural enrichment of which education and philosophy is a part of that but that requires us to be open to things which we might find upsetting things which are sometimes controversial and it's strange that to me that how the left in particular has lost its argument today it's so fearful of cultural freedom so fearful of cultural openness and to me that you know the more cultural enrichment we have in the world the better but that sometimes means that we have to deal with art which is provocative or unsettling we have to deal with you know ideas which are provocative or unsettling but without that the world doesn't move forward we need and i think this is an important point i think perhaps as a final point i can say whilst we need to critique violence we need to also recognize that non-violent conflict is important for societies we develop sometimes our best ideas through the conflict of ideas through the conflict of you know we think about you know i can't think of any great work of art a great book written historically which didn't clash with something which didn't come into a conflict of ideas you know there is you know there's this wonderful and maybe we can end on this there's this you know wonderful poem which was written to me by one of the greatest artists to ever live which was charlie chaplin and charlie chaplin writes this poem about how i learned to love myself and at the end of the poem he poem he says you know and as i've learned that even stars collide but out of this is given birth to a new earth and i think there is something beautiful in this idea that we need to recognize that as humans we are you know we need the conflict because that conflict gives rise to new ideas and that is where we need to have maybe a better understanding too this is this is absolutely great and in fact what i really take away like from your last point like two things like try to appreciate perspectives and let the churn continue i think this has just been an amazingly uh, stimulating talk uh, brad evans thanks a lot for joining us today and thanks for uh, 
being with us. And I think this conversation could have gone on for uh, a lot more time, but I look forward to hosting you once again sometime in the near, near future. Thank you, brothers. Thank you. Thanks so, for inviting me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.